Hey everyone, welcome to the Cross to Ground podcast, episode 63, glad you're with us. Today we're going to begin a new series discussing Roman Catholicism and answering the question whether or not we should consider Catholics our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're also going to continue to talk to men, especially today about wealth and hard work, and we're going to talk about the sexual purity of women. So, I hope you're ready. Get your Bible, grab a cup of coffee, and let's get to work. It's time to put on the mind of Christ. Today we begin episode 63 with our King's study, our, uh, our study of manhood, and I want to uh, talk to you a little bit about Proverbs 10.4. Here's what Proverbs 10.4 says, Poor is, the, is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Now before we get into the actual text, I want to, uh, to, to bring up a mindset that uh, we have in the Christian culture today that uh, minimizes the relationship between work and success. It, it seems like we are generally afraid to acknowledge that there is a relationship, that if we work hard at anything, we can actually get somewhere, we can achieve something. It's the, that, that idea, that connection between our diligence and uh, profit and success in anything, this could be spiritual matters, evangelism, church growth, making money, whatever, marriage. Uh, you know, we, we, we are so careful to give God glory and, and to say that everything is of grace, that we, we let those passages that teach those things trump and basically render meaningless any of the passages that say we must work hard and that we reap what we sow. You realize that the, the statement, a man reaps what he sows, is just as inspired as, apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus said that to his disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's true, but the implication is if we abide in him, we can do great things. Jesus told those same disciples in the same context, if I leave and send the Spirit, you'll do better things than I did, greater things than I have done. We're not supposed to take his instruction about abiding in him as an excuse to do nothing and think that we can't actually achieve anything. Rather, don't try to do it in your own strength but do it in the strength of the Lord. Stay attached to Christ. And if you do, you can do amazing things. You will reap what you sow as you're attached to Christ. So we need to not be afraid of success. And, and there's this, you know, this false humility uh, where we don't actually admit what is true about ourselves or somebody else. Last week, I was in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, which is where 
our district office is for for the district that we are in, in the Christian Missionary Alliance. And I sit on the Licensing and Ordaining Council. So uh, several times a year, I travel to Omaha and we interview men who are uh, going to be ordained. We, uh, we grill them on theological and biblical questions. And uh, what, what I've noticed is there are several of my brothers on this council, and, and these are good men. I, I love these guys, and I consider them brothers and friends. Uh, but there is a, a prevailing attitude uh, among some of them that, uh, of this very thing I'm talking about. Let me give you an example. Uh, one guy said to one of the, uh, the interviewees, I've been doing this 40 years, meaning I've been pastoring, I've been uh, serving in church leadership for 40 years, and I'm no better at this than you. And I'm listening to this thinking, hmm, if I went back to my early days in ordination and a guy who had been doing this 40 years said, I'm no better at being a pastor, elder, church leader than you are now at the beginning of your journey, uh, I'd be thinking, why are you sitting on this council interviewing me if you're no better than I am? And after 40 years, you've not grown in your ability to be an elder, a pastor, a church leader. Uh, another guy said at one point, you know, none of us have arrived and none of us really know what we're doing. So be encouraged. Uh, you're doing okay. Now, I understand the sentiment. I understand what it is that these these men are trying to do, trying to, to set the, the, the emerging leader at ease and, and encourage him that there's always more room for growth. And, you know, we want to be humble and all that. But, but really, no progress in 40 years. Look, if you're a pastor, if you're a preacher, a teacher, if you're whatever you do, this is for all of us as men. So let me, let me change gears from pastor. I'm a guitar player. I studied music in college. Uh, I, I majored in classical guitar. I understand music. I'm a good musician. That, that's true. It would be false humility to say, oh, you know, I've been doing this for, for 50 years almost, and, and uh, I'm, just, I'm no better guitar player than you who just took your first lesson. That's just crazy, and it doesn't actually communicate what we hope to communicate when we say that. And... and that whole mindset stems from a, um, a fear that we are going to sound prideful if we express that we can actually achieve anything. And yet, the scripture calls us repeatedly to work hard at all that we do. You know, put your hand to the plow and don't look back. Keep going. This is true of every endeavor we undergo as men. So back to... Proverbs 10, 4 then, to the passage, let me read it again. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand. So if your hand is lazy, if you don't put your hand to the plow, or you put it on there and you take it off and you get on your phone all day and use your hand instead of for plowing, for reading uh, online, social media, and that kind of thing, uh, then you're going to be poor. If your hand is diligent... It will make you rich, which leads to another lie that penetrates our Christian thinking sometimes. Wealth in and of itself is not evil. Nowhere does God say wealth is evil. Sure, Jesus said it is hard 
for a rich man to enter heaven. But it's not impossible. It's exactly what he goes on to say. What's impossible with man is possible with God. Uh, wealth is, is neutral. It's not good or bad. It's just a thing. And to pursue wealth is not inherently evil. To work hard and become rich by working hard? Great. Now, rich people are told what to do with their wealth. They are to be careful not to make an idol out of it. They need to create uh, a bigger storehouse in heaven, you know, set, uh, build their treasure in heaven uh, rather than here on earth and, and not rely on their wealth, but to always remember God could take it away at any time. And he is the, the giver of this wealth. And they're told to use that wealth for his glory, give generously and so on. But working hard in order to make money is not evil. It's good. It's right. Uh, we must always be careful not to let exceptions overrule the rule. So we all know lazy people who have gotten rich, and we know people who've worked hard who haven't. But generally speaking, it's the diligent hand that brings wealth. And we should encourage men, we as men should be encouraged to work hard and be the best at whatever we're doing and seek the, the reward that comes with that hard work. Uh, seeking promotions, great, do it. Become the best at whatever skills you have. And earning money, do it. The church needs it. Hey, I would love it if every man in my church became exceedingly wealthy and gave generously to the church, to the work of the ministry. Think of missions that could be done and evangelism and all the, all the building up of the, the church body and the impact in the city if we had more money to work with. It's, it's all, uh, we need money. The kingdom needs money. And we need men who are pursuing wealth with, with diligence. We need to be careful never to incentivize laziness. Right? We have to think through our words of exhortation and, and what are we promoting? What are we incentivizing? Don't incentivize laziness. This is true in our spiritual growth. If we tell someone your sanctification is all of grace, you can't earn righteousness, you, you, you can't become uh, more righteous by, by simply trying to be more righteous. First of all, that's lying to them and it's unbiblical, but you're also telling them, don't work, don't get after it. Don't expect to grow in sanctification. And the, and the same concept applies in building wealth. If we tell men not to pursue hard work and wealth, because that's robbing God of glory, we're lying. We're telling them things that are not true in the scripture. So for all of us as men, let's take this proverb seriously and, and think well and, and not be deceived by erroneous teachers in the church. Uh, the Bible says there is a relationship between what we sow and what we reap. And that's true of every aspect of life. And don't be afraid of being successful. Be afraid of being prideful. Be afraid of being self-reliant. But it is possible to be successful and profitable and wealthy and achieve great things and give glory to God and uh, worshiping him with a pure heart and uh, showing others how to be successful uh, for the sake of Christ. So don't be afraid of success and wealth. Pursue it diligently, but with a mindset that is Christ honoring. 
All right, for our Shepherds segment of episode 63, we're going to continue looking at Titus, where uh, Paul is telling this young church leader to instruct older women to instruct younger women. Uh, Titus is to train the older women, and the older women are to train the younger women. And we're in verse 5 of chapter 2, and we looked last week at sensible, and this week we look at the next word, pure. Uh, It's the word hognos. Uh, which comes from hagos, which if you know Greek, is from the family of words that is normally translated holy. So he's telling older women to tell younger women to be holy. But uh, this word, when it's uh, applied to women, usually has to do with holiness in terms of what we might call chastity or sexual purity. So that's how we're going to talk about it today. So older women are to instruct younger women to be sexually pure, to be chaste, to be uh, be aware of the temptations to sensuality and that kind of thing. And my first concern is to make sure that we do not um, approach this topic with naivete, and, and especially that we think only men are tempted to sexual impurity. You know, there is sort of that uh, that mindset, that view that uh, sex is a man's temptation, and that's just naive. Uh, women are just as sexual as men are. I, I teach men this all the time as we as we as I talk to husbands and try to help them uh, in, improve their sex and and their relationship, their romantic relationship with their wives. And we go through Song of Songs, Song of Solomon. And if if you look at the first verse of Song of Songs. The first statement, I should say, I think it's verse two. Uh, it's the woman who speaks first. She is, she in her own head is is wishing, almost commanding the king to take her into his chambers and make love to her. So the opening of this song is a woman's sexual appetite. Now the thing is, she keeps most of her thoughts to herself, whereas men are a little more expressive of it outwardly. But we we tend to think that women aren't as sexual, and that's just a lie. Uh, they're every bit as interested as men are. Uh, it's just that men are not very good at drawing it out from women. So as I talk to these husbands, uh, we spend a lot of time talking about what really attracts a woman sexually. And uh, it's not what the lies of feminism have told us. It's not It's not romance per se. It's not chore play, any of that kind of stuff. Anyway, that's not what we're talking about today. But I, I just want, uh, if you read a Song of Songs, you realize the woman has as much to say about her sexual desires, about the man's body, about her longings to be taken. All of those things are uh, just as frequent in the Song of Songs as are the man's sexual desires. So don't be naive men in thinking that uh, women are less sexual. They're not. Porn is a real temptation for women. Uh, Again, just the way we approach sexuality, uh, it is a stronger temptation for men, but it is not an absent... Temptation for women. I've counseled women. We, we've, we've, as elders and uh, as our women, older women in our church have have counseled younger women. This is a significant attraction to them, especially for younger women. But even more so, women are drawn to real encounters with men who are. Uh, attractive, truly attractive in in all the ways that that male attractiveness in, again, contrary to what we've been told in our feminist culture, uh, when a man who is is strong, who is confident, 
uh, who's doing things in the world, who's on a mission and pursuing uh, important things, and men who don't put women on a pedestal and don't treat women as though they are the end-all, be-all, that's actually very attractive to women. And so what we have is we have men who are following the lies of feminism and catering to and cowering before women, and that turns them off. And then they, so so Christian husbands are doing that. And then these women encounter a a man who's successful and and working hard and, and showing true manhood. And now she's tempted to receive attention from him. This is real. This is happening all the time. Um, and we as men need to be careful not to be naive to that. So uh, this is this is universal. This is in every culture, every generation, not just ours. Women are attracted to those kind of men. So Paul here gives the admonishment to older women to tell the young women to train them to be pure. So younger women uh, need to put off the impurities and put on purity. So the things that they put off, of course, uh, women need to be careful not to be flirtatious with men and use their own attractiveness, uh, their eyes, their looks, their words to draw uh, other men. Now, that's especially true for married women, but even single women need to be careful. Uh, you know, she can certainly express that she's available and interested, but she needs to be careful not to, uh, to be pursuing sinful thoughts and interactions with a man. She needs to be careful, this is true of married women and single women, be careful how they dress, uh, that they are not dressing in order to be provocative, to be alluring. Uh, now, again, I think we can go too far the other way. And, uh, you know, women are supposed to dress like women. I forget who it is, some, some famous president's wife, I don't know if it was Mrs. Roosevelt, somebody uh, said, uh, y- you know, a woman should wear a dress that's tight enough to show that she's a woman and loose enough to show that she's a lady. I think that's a a pretty good standard. Uh, Men will be attracted if they let their minds go there to any outfit just about. So uh, it's not not, uh, just on a, a woman to dress modestly, but she needs to check her heart and say, okay, what is my goal here for wearing this? Uh, am I trying to draw the eyes of other men, especially as a married woman, being careful not to want to be alluring to other men? Uh, so, you know, the, the Bible doesn't give us exact uh, descriptions of what that is, but women need to check their heart. This is the kind of thing that an older woman should train a younger woman in. And, you know, she's been down this road and she knows what will catch the eye of men and she can tell these young women, hey, be careful with, with um, exaggerating this part of your body or that one. Any romantic gestures from a woman to a man, especially a married woman to a man, uh, is, is an impure action. Women need to be careful with their online connections. You know, social media, Facebook, uh, uh, Twitter, although women aren't on Twitter as much, uh, Instagram, whatever. Uh, they need to be careful and not connect with men uh, in any way that creates a scenario where the man might think she's flirting or interested, that kind of thing. She shouldn't be suggestive with, uh, with other men. She shouldn't be inviting into uh, deeper conversation and relationships. Uh, I encourage men and women to, to work out, to get to the gym. 
but it, women need to be careful with what they wear at the gym and their interactions uh, because that's that's just a can be a hotbed for um, for fun, flirting, attractive bodies uh, and, and some not so attractive bodies. Uh, so that could be a different temptation maybe. But just they, women need to be careful with how they present themselves at the gym. You know, we hear a lot about so-called emotional affairs. And, uh, and, and again, this is not all on the woman, but these instructions are to the woman uh, that she needs to be careful and keep herself pure and not allow those relationships to, uh, to ever get to a place where there's a heart connection that shouldn't be uh, happening. Uh, and then they have to guard their hearts, their minds, their, the fantasies. Uh, again, we've already discussed pornography a little bit, but then there's you know romance novels, TV, movies, uh, daydreaming about that man or that man or that man. Uh, that's not purity. And uh, so women need to be careful of this. So again, older wives, Paul says, are to train younger wives in these things. So uh, you, as a church leader, need to make sure that older women are meeting with younger women, whether it's a classroom or one-on-one or whatever, and and being very frank and very candid about this. Uh, again, we, 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 we can be it's crazy in this culture that the Christians can be so sheepish and so uh, spiritually minded that we, we sort of want to pretend like sexual tension is not there, that sexual attraction isn't a real thing, or, you know, it's only for certain people. No, it's, we're, we're sexual creatures, all of us. And, and that's good. That's God-given. It's wonderful. And, but young wives need to be instructed, need to be trained on how to put off that sexuality with anyone who's not their husband. Conversely, they need to be told to pursue them with a passion with their husbands. Uh, they need to be sexual with their husbands. They need to be part of that purity is to to pursue a wonderful romantic relationship with their husband. Now, of course, I know wives who do this, who try to do this, and their husbands just don't get it. Their husbands have been trained poorly, and uh, and they don't know how to attract a wife, and, and they don't know how to lead their wife sexually, and and so that's discouraging to the young wife. And I, and I get that. And so that's the kind of thing that men need to be helping other men with. Uh, but on the wife's part, she needs to put off the sinful sexual things and put on the righteous sexual things. When they don't, when they, when they don't put off the sin, uh, marriages suffer greatly, families suffer greatly. And most importantly, uh, Jesus Christ is dishonored. So Older women train younger women to be pure, and we as pastors need to train the older women to train the younger women to be pure. All right, so for our theology section of episode 63, uh, we're going to begin a new series looking at Roman Catholicism. And we're going to talk about the theology of Catholicism, uh, but my, my impetus for doing this is I find that Christians don't know how to respond to, how to interact with Catholics, don't know what to think about Catholics. Uh, Whenever I speak on Catholicism and in any way communicate that Catholics may not be believers, I always have people come running up to me after the uh, the sermon or the lecture and say, well, I know so-and-so, my friend, my family member, whatever, um, 
is a is a is a good Catholic, and I know they love Jesus, and and so they would want to push back and say Catholics are Christians, or at least some of them are Christians. And I asked them, on what do you base that? And again, it's they, they talk about faith, they they read the Bible, and they they go to church, and they love people, and they believe in the Trinity, and they they believe in the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, and they're against abortion and, and all these things. And, and that's all good and that's all true. But then I ask, do you know what it is they are depending on for salvation? Do you know what they really believe about how someone is saved? And most of them don't. And occasionally it's, yeah, they, they believe in Jesus. And I will say, okay, uh, good, but what exactly? Um, they, the Catholics, of course, believe that Jesus died and rose again and that you must believe in that. But what is it actually that they're trusting in? What about Jesus are they trusting in? And most of the people that I talk to don't know that. And here's the interesting thing. Here is why I am driven to keep talking about this with people. I know a lot of former Catholics, and none of them tell me or others they believe they were saved when they were Catholics. In other words, non-Catholics want to give the benefit of the doubt to Catholics. Converted Catholics, those who have converted from Catholicism, they know their own state, they know what they believed, they know what others in the Catholic Church believe, and their conclusion is Catholics are not saved. Now, I'm sure there are, uh, well, I shouldn't say I'm sure, I can see how it's possible for there to be those in the Catholic Church who are genuinely converted. But we need to be careful not to just assume that they are simply because they say a lot of the right things. It all comes down to what they really believe. And most Protestants don't understand what's so significant about Catholics. Yeah, we, we react poorly to the, to the Mariolatry kind of stuff, the, the praying to Mary, praying to the saints, that's bad. And we, we like to mock the Pope and, uh, and think, how can they be so crazy as to think that this one man in the funny hat is, uh, is all, that, uh, all that, especially as there's you know, flip-flopping and taking positions on this and that. Uh, they're so crazy at times. And, and we, we, the rituals and, and all that, we, we sort of say, oh, they're off on a lot of things, but, but they're Christians. Uh, all of those other things are important, but the heart of the matter, the heart of the Reformation the reason Martin Luther and his friends rebelled against the, uh, the Catholic Church was not for those things, but it ultimately came down to how is a person saved? How is a person justified before God? And so we need to understand the Catholic teaching on, on these things. So uh, we're going to spend a few weeks on this. And before we jump into justification, which we won't get to today, uh, I want to back up a little bit and look at the Catholic teaching more broadly on the sacraments, uh, because this is the heart and soul of everything Catholic and the difference that we must have with Catholicism. So let's, uh, let's begin our general overview here of Catholic theology. Uh, for what it's worth, uh, I, I'll put my cards on the table. Anyone who believes the Catholic teaching on the sacraments and justification by faith is believing a false gospel. 
And so we should look at this not as um, training to go fight primarily, but to win them to Christ. Uh, we want those who are in darkness to come into the light. And, and so listen with that in view as, as we go through this. So generally speaking, Catholicism teaches that salvation and grace and righteousness, uh, these things are all dispensed by the church. Uh, it, it, it has something to do with the disposition of the recipient, but most of the emphasis is placed on uh, the church and the sacraments, the, the rituals themselves dispensing uh, God's goodness and, and grace. So going way back uh, to the Reformation time, before the Reformation, after the Reformation, uh, the church, the, the Catholic church has always emphasized the tortures and torments of hell. If you know the story of Martin Luther, you know how he, when he became a monk and really began to study, well, even before he became a monk, in fact, this is what drove him to become a monk. He was so convinced of God's fury and wrath that uh, when a lightning bolt struck nearby and he was thrown off of his horse, he was convinced God was out to get him. And so he cried out to Saint Anne, uh, who he was hoping this, this saint, this woman would appeal to God on, her, on his behalf. He appealed to Saint Anne asking uh, for salvation from the storm. And if God spared him, then he would abandon his pursuit of uh, law, of, of being an attorney, and he would become a monk. And sure enough, he wasn't killed in that storm, and so he kept his word and became a monk because he was so afraid of God's wrath and anger and fury, and that happened in this life. Well, how much more would his wrath and fury be poured out in the tormentuous place called hell? And so the Catholic Church loved to emphasize this because it, uh, it, 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 it prevent, provided the need for a way of escape, and candidly, uh, it didn't hurt their exercise uh, of control over the people if everyone was afraid. So that was uh, the, the teaching of, of Rome for many generations. Uh, and so this escape from God's wrath was the grace of Jesus Christ granted by the church through the sacraments. So we look at our, you look at Protestants today and think, you know, there's, there's a, we're, we're kind of sheepish to talk about hell. We need more emphasis on judgment and God's wrath. And of course, we want to drive people to the saving grace of Jesus Christ, but it's through faith alone in the gospel. It's not through the sacraments, which is what Rome teaches. Sacraments are mysterious, according to Catholicism, uh, and that is that uh, they will admit they don't know exactly how uh, grace is given through them. It's this mystery that God has, has chosen to dispense his goodness through the, the mysteries of the sacraments. So they don't define it to the nth degree. They just know that it works. Uh, quite literally, the sacraments work. Uh, one of the phrases they use in their own documentation is that they are efficacious. The sacraments are efficacious. And they use this phrase, this Latin phrase, ex opera operato. Ex is out of, 
opera. If you think of uh, an opera today, we think of a musical piece, usually in a foreign language with a very uh, uh, high tenor or soprano. Uh, nobody knows what they're singing about, but it's you know this formal musical. Well, opera is a work. A work of art is an opera, a work of music, a work of, uh, of an author, all these things. The, the word opera, you know, we get our word operation from it means work. So the phrase ex opera operato is uh, out of the work working, meaning the work of the sacrament actually works in the recipient. It's, it's not so much about me as the recipient of the sacrament. It's about the sacrament itself doing its work. And this is so precious to them, so so uh, carefully uh, preserved and conserved that uh, only a an authorized clergyman can perform the sacraments, except in the rarest of uh, occasions. So the this places the control over a person's salvation in the hands of the priest or bishop. The bishops, the priests, they're the ones who are ordained to distribute the. Uh, sacraments, and therefore you got to go to mass. You've got to go receive the sacraments from these priests. So there is a mediator between God's grace and God. And in other words, the individual Christian cannot go straight to God and receive His grace and receive justification by faith. He has to go through the priest. So the Bible says. The only mediator between God and man is Jesus. The Catholic Church says, no, Jesus has implemented his mediation through Catholic priests and bishops. So you do have to go through men, uh, specifically priests, to receive um, the benefits of the sacraments. So you probably can see already where this is heading and why this is such a big problem. All right. So the sacraments, there are seven of them, exactly seven of them in the Catholic church. And they are baptism, which we will look at next week, confirmation, Holy Eucharist, or what we would call the Lord's Supper, penance, anointing of the sick, holy orders, and matrimony. Or marriage. Marriage is a sacrament in the Catholic Church. So the seven sacraments, baptism, confirmation, holy Eucharist, penance, anointing of the sick, holy orders, and matrimony. Now, in the Council of Trent, which was the Catholic response to the Reformation. So Luther and friends rebelled against Catholicism. They left Catholicism. They first sought to reform Catholicism, and then they eventually left it all together. And uh, at the mid, late, l- later mid uh, 16th century, the uh, Catholic Church responded to the actions and teaching of the reformers in what's called the Counter Reformation. And they called together a council, and they, it's called the Council of Trent because they met in Trento uh, in, in Italy. And uh, these kinds of councils, the church councils, are considered infallible uh, in the Catholic Church. So when, when these councils gather and they and they formally make 
their documents and their declarations, that becomes binding on all Catholics everywhere for all time. They're infallible. They can't be changed. They're not uh, in any way erroneous. Uh, so we, we can and must hold fast to whatever decrees are given by these councils. That's the Catholic view. Now, the truth is relativism has penetrated every corner of this earth. And uh, Vatican II in the 1960s loosened some of those things. So we have these infallible decrees that were changed or modified or weakened in the 1960s. Uh, it's contradictory, doesn't make any sense, but again, it's just rel- relativism penetrating uh, into every corner, including Catholicism. But on the books, at the Council of Trent, that has never been repudiated, so even Vatican II did not repudiate these things, because uh, it can't, it's invaluable, right? Uh, the This is the... Uh, These statements are official doctrine by the Catholic Church that all Catholics must abide by. So I want to read a a portion here of the uh, Council of Trent, uh, Session 7, discussing the sacraments. And this is all online. You can find it. You can read these for yourselves. Uh, But let me me just go through a few of these uh, with you. This is in response to the reformers to Luther and others. So on the sacraments in general, this is canon one. By the way, canon law, uh, if you if you study Catholicism, you will come across this idea of canon law. Canon is the word that we use in Christian circles. It's from the Greek word that means uh, a measure, a reed that was used as a measuring. You know, think of a, a ruler, a 12-inch ruler in our day, uh, something that is a standard of measure. That's what the word canon means. So when we talk about the canon of Scripture, we are saying that Scripture is our measuring stick. It is our rule for authority and godliness and that kind of thing. Well, then the uh, Catholics invented what they call canon law, where the uh, the magisterium, the church teaching branch, uh they are the ones that decide what the scripture means. And when they interpret it and give it out, then Catholics are required to obey and to submit to their canon law. And throughout the Middle Ages, canon law got into every aspect of a, of a person's life. And they became um, uh, involved in every aspect of, of person's life. Well, the Council of Trent formalized these theological statements in response to the reformers. And so we have these different canons, these rules, these standards uh, listed. And here's session seven, canon one on the sacraments. And here's what it says, canon one. If anyone says that the sacraments of the new law were not all instituted by Jesus Christ, our Lord, or that they are more or less than seven, and then lists the seven of them that I just read to you a minute ago, or even that any one of these seven is not truly and properly a sacrament, let him be anathema. So, canon number one on the sacraments is, if anyone denies there are exactly seven sacraments, and they're the ones I read off to you, let him be anathema. That word anathema comes right out of the Greek when uh, Paul said, anyone who believes a false gospel, let him be anathema, let him be accursed, let him be damned to hell, is what the word means. Council of Trent is saying, if you do not believe in the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church, 
let you be cursed or damned to hell. Let that sink in. Now, does that mean your average Catholic knows these things? Of course not. Most of them probably have no clue. Most of them have never read the canons of, of uh, Trent, and probably their priests don't, uh, don't enforce this, but it's official Catholic dogma that has never been recanted of. Canon two, if anyone says that these said sacraments of the new law do, do not differ from the sacraments of the old law, meaning in the old covenant, uh, say the ceremonies are different. Uh, and different outward rites, let him be anathema. Again, uh, that gets into more of their view of the Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant stuff. But uh, the point is they have declared something very clearly and saying, if you don't agree, then you are to be accursed. Um, Here's Canon 4. If anyone says that the sacraments of the new law are not necessary unto salvation but superfluous, and that without them or without the desire thereof, men obtain of God through faith alone the grace of justification, though all the sacraments are not indeed necessary for every individual, let him be anathema. Let me unpack that for you for a minute. So, they're making a couple of important distinctions. Um, Some sacraments are not required for all men. For instance, marriage, right? They forbid priests from being married. So they would say that the sacrament of matrimony is not binding on priests. So that's an exception. Uh, and there, there may be some others along the way. Uh, holy orders, one of the, uh, the sacraments, uh, is, you know, that's for priests only, for the, for the clergy only. Um, anointing with the, for the sick. Well, if you're not sick, you don't need that sacrament right now. So given those exceptions, they're saying anyone who says that these sacraments are not necessary for salvation, but that man can obtain salvation by faith alone and the grace of justification through faith alone. If you, so in other words, if you believe the Protestant view of, sanctification, or of justification, if you believe what I believe, what I assume you believe, that we're saved by faith alone and not through the sacraments in any way, you are to be damned, accursed, anathema. If anyone, this is Canon 6, if anyone says the sacraments of the new law do not contain the grace which they signify, or that they do not confer the grace on those who do not place an obstacle thereunto, as though they were merely outward signs of grace or justice received through faith, and certain marks of the Christian profession whereby believers are distinguished among men from unbelievers, let him be anathema. Again, the the heart of that one is, if you don't believe that the signs themselves, the the sacraments themselves uh, confer grace, but they're just just an outward sign, but they don't actually do anything, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. Anyway, I could go on, but you see the significance. The, the, the heart of our difference with Catholicism lies in the sacraments, the understanding of the sacraments, because they believe the justification of God for sinners comes through the work of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, all of that, and even through faith, and all, it's all, all by grace, but it is given to the sinner through the sacraments. 
And the sacraments have real power, real ability to do things. So let that, let, that, uh, let that ruminate in your heart and your mind for a little while as we come back to this in, in uh, upcoming episodes to talk about justification and so on. Think, think about how this is, if you know Lutherans, if you know anybody in the Lutheran church, there is uh, echoes of this, maybe more than echoes, in the Lutheran church. There certainly are echoes of this in some strands of Presbyterianism. Uh, and other Reformed groups. This stuff matters. I don't like the word sacrament. We don't use it at my church, and I would encourage you not to use it at your church and to, to not talk to other Christians about sacraments. It is not a biblical term. And even though some of our heroes, Presbyterian guys like R.C. Sproul and others, uh, Jonathan Edwards and, and some of those guys have all believed in the sacraments, I think it's dangerous, especially in a culture that cannot differentiate between Protestant and Roman view, and just in every way, I think it leads to dangerous associations and and meanings. We should steer clear of it. So, as you think about your Catholic friends and family members, and as you interact with them, ask them, what are the sacraments? What do you think the sacraments accomplish? And where do you place your authority? Is it in the church, in the priest, in the, in the teaching of the church, or is it in the scripture? And how do they reconcile all of those things and talk about all those things? Give it some thought, and uh, we will come back next week and continue looking at Catholicism. All right, friends. Well, that wraps up episode 63 of the podcast. Thanks for uh, coming along. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter at Doug Gooden, D-O-U-G-G-O-O-D-I-N. Also, uh, if you would like Cross to Crown Ministries on Facebook, you can keep up to date with all of our updates, all of our uh, resources and that kind of thing. And check out our website, crosstocrown.org, for lots of uh, books and uh, tons and tons of, uh, of lectures and, and sermons on, uh, on theology. Just had a guy say to me the other day, he recently started listening through all the old Bunyan conferences with John Riesinger and Doug Moo and D.A. Carson and Blake White and others. He's been listening for hours and hours, and he says, uh, this is just a wealth of great information, uh, and, and that's true. So check it out. Check out the resources there, crosstocrown.org. All right, that's it for today. Uh, until next week, live intentionally Christ-obsessed in all things.